Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. How many of you have ever experienced inattentional blindness? Anyone? Hands up. How many of you have experienced inattentional blindness? I've got news for you, folks. Every hand should go up right now. Every hand up. Every one of you have experienced intentional blindness. And in fact, every one of you have experienced it today already. Yeah, it's true. It, it was a trick question, I know. <laughs> the truth is, inattentional blindness, it's a funny word, I know, I've never heard of it before. It is actually one of the important ways that our brain helps us navigate the world safely. Our brains are constantly sifting through a tremendous amount of visual data, auditory data, we know that and making snap decisions about what's important, that truck coming toward me, what's not important, some bug far off in the distance that you never even saw, always sifting. And through hard-won experiences, our brains had developed the power to focus almost instantly on certain things and then just ignore much else. And that is to our well-being, inattentional blindness. This video will help us understand it a little more. Let me show you a trick. Follow the coin. It's in my right hand, now it's in my left hand, now I snap my fingers, and it's gone. You might say, well, it's still in your right hand, and you'll be right, except for it's not. The coin is actually right here, and you are blind. Not completely, and not all of the time, obviously, but still, sometimes you don't see what is right in front of your eyes. And it's more often than you think. Let me show you. Count how many times the football hits the nets. The correct answer is seven. But did you see the monkey and the banana? How about the football changing its shape? Did you see anything else? In fact, there are a total of 10 different changes in this small animation, and I'm sure that you missed at least some of them. The question is why? Why sometimes we miss what is right in front of our eyes? Your eyes move four times a second, jumping from one object to another and scanning for new information. Even right now, your eyes are probably jumping within my eyes, mouth and hands. These jumps are called saccadic movements and are used to register mostly stationary objects. It's necessary because you can see in detail only a small portion of your view, the size of around your thumb and arm length away from you. So in order to make sense of the environment, your eyes have to constantly jump in different places and gather new information. However, sometimes you need to lock your eyes on a fast-moving object, like the football I showed you. Then your eyes can't just jump around, they need to stay focused on the target. That's when smooth pursuit takes place. Your eyes are moving slower, but they're fixated on the target continuously. 
As a result, you have a very clear vision of a small moving object, but you don't really see anything else. And that's the point. We can only see what we are focused on. And we can focus only on so many things. We pay attention to the most important information and we almost completely ignore the rest. Even right now, if you close your eyes, are you able to tell what I'm wearing right now? Perhaps not, because you are focused on what I'm saying and I'm my constantly moving hands rather than on my clothes. In the animation of the balls, you are focused on the football and you might have missed the monkey simply because you didn't focus on it and you didn't expect it. This phenomenon is called inattentional blindness and it takes place when we don't see something simply because we are focused on something else. Did you hear that? I'm going to quote him. We can only see what we're focused on and we can only focus on so many things. We pay attention to the most important things and almost completely ignore the rest. And so we all experience inattentional blindness. Sometimes we don't see something because we're focused on something else. Anyone? Where are my keys? Or the classic, where are my glasses? You know? Um, <clears throat> but it raises an interesting parallel question for me. Can we become inattentionally blind in how we see other people? And could our inattentional blindness about people Keep us from seeing things that Jesus finds very obvious. That Jesus, in fact, wants us to see. We all have, we know this, we all have established ways of seeing others, right? And they're quick. They're snap judgments. Some of them are inherited. Some of them have been reinforced from our backgrounds, our prejudices, our experiences, for sure. Stories that we carry, tell ourselves, our, even our personalities, we focus often on cultural standards of beauty or signs of wealth or cues of social normativity. Some people are odd, right? And you just kind of... Yeah. Or maybe markers of similarity in speech or in look or in pursuits. Uh, so much so that we'll see certain people and we'll just not see others. Or maybe we'll see people, but in a certain way, and as a result, ignore something else. Well, as apprentices of Jesus, which is the metaphor we've been working with as we've been going through our master class, that's a big M up there for master class. A few of you have asked me. Um, and, and as apprentices of Jesus, it, it makes me ask, are there ways that I need to have my vision refocused, my way of seeing others, so that I don't miss something critical, something even obvious that Jesus really wants me to see. Uh, the funny thing is, is that our normal uh, inattentional blindness can actually be countered in all the different studies or little tests or even the one that he did with the bouncing balls. Um, if you're just given a simple heads up, you can catch it, Right? You can notice, if you're given a clue to what you're missing, you're told to look for something else, people can spot the differences quite easily. And they're actually usually surprised that they miss something so obvious. And I think through the life and ministry of Jesus, he can help us see people differently. He, in that sense, offers us clues through his life, through his teaching, through his ministry, that can shift our focus and enable us to see what has been obvious to him all along. Here's the interesting thing. 
in our lives, in, inattentional blindness is something that isn't cured or eliminated. It's actually a good gift from God. We're thankful for it. But when it comes to how we see people, our inattentional blindness can be changed. It can be shifted. And this story we're going to look at today will help us do that. We don't want to miss what Jesus sees so clearly. So let's pray as we dive into the text today. Lord Jesus, we want to see people like you see people. We confess that we don't. And we come to you today and come to your word today and ask that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, shift our focus so that we see what you see. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 5, uh, 27 to 32, and we're going to just read through that story. We're going to notice three ways that Jesus helps shift our inattentional blindness. Here's the story. After this, this is after the healing of the paralytic uh, that Rob Peterson uh, taught on last week. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first way that Jesus shifts our inattentional blindness is this. Jesus sees problem people with kingdom potentiality. We often only see the problem with that person, right? But Jesus sees potentiality. You know, Levi sitting here at the uh, the tax collector's booth, let's be honest, he's the very last person that anyone was looking at and thinking, now there's a budding follower of Jesus, ripe for the picking. I mean, just look at him. Why aren't any of these other rabbis noticing this fine, young individual decked out in fine clothes that he's been ripping off from his fellow Jews? I mean, doesn't he just scream as he's collecting his cash, faithful and ready for Yahweh's service? No, he does not. He's a low life. And for the Jews, Levi represents everything that is wrong with the world. I dare say you probably have a few people in mind already who are kind of like that. But Levi represents that. Israel is struggling under the ugly thumb of Roman peace. He's the sign of their lordship over them. And tax collectors, as we know, were notorious for skimming extra off the top to pad their profits. And as long as they kind of kept it under control and didn't do it too foolishly, Rome looked the other way. So when any faithful Jew looked at Levi standing in his booth, or worse, lined up to have to pay him in his latest Gucci suit, courtesy of their hard-earned cash or shekels, they saw nothing more than a compromised, corrupt problem. That's what they saw. But that's not what Jesus saw. I mean, clearly, Jesus looked at this man and saw something totally different. Something that was obvious to him, but was being missed by everyone else. 
Jesus saw a man in need of a higher call, a man destined for a kingdom purpose, a man desperately in need of Jesus. And so Jesus sees Levi, and he calls him to follow. And we often marvel over Levi's immediate response here, don't we? Wow, got up, left everything, followed him. Eh, Fine, marvel over that. But what we really should be marveling over is the fact that Jesus called him in the first place. This is an odd fellow for Jesus to want. I mean, the young fisherman Simon, yeah, okay. The Zebedee brothers, yeah. The Nathaniel guy, sure. But this guy, him? I mean, these other guys are good old boys that probably grew up in the synagogue every Sabbath, you know? Not Levi. He's a very unlikely disciple. I feel like there are people that are going, okay, Jesus, that was way out in left field. What are you doing here? And it forces us to ask the question, what did Jesus see in Levi that no one else saw? Jesus saw a man with kingdom potential, and he calls him to follow, knowing that if he would do so, if he would take that risk and follow Jesus, he would never be the same. That Levi the lowlife would begin to change. That as he followed Jesus, he would become Levi the leader, Levi the loved. That that true person that God loved and had called would begin to emerge. And so let me ask you, who are the unlikelies that we are missing? Who are the people, when we look at them, we see only the problem? Let's, uh, I mean, come on, we do, right? I do. It's hard sometimes not to see the problem, the compromise, the corruption, whatever is wrong. And when I hear this story, I have to say, am I willing to ask Jesus to shift my sight so that I begin to see someone that I would have just said problem and think, Lord Jesus, can you help me see potentiality? Can you help me see what could be for this person if they followed you? And so I invite you to think of your problem person right now. Don't elbow anyone. But in your mind, just for a moment, who jumps out to you as the problem? In your your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school? Who's the problem? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us see these people with your kingdom potentiality. That you would shift our attention and give us the grace and the, encourage, and the courage to engage these people with your eyes, Lord Jesus. Amen. The second way Jesus shifts our inattentional blindness is that he views sinful people with compassionate eyes. Uh, where we maybe only see sinners in need of rejection, Jesus sees sick in need of healing. This is a famous part of the story, right? Well, Levi, I love this guy already. He comes to follow Jesus, and I think he only has one trick up his sleeve. He knows how to win friends and influence people really one way. He throws parties. 
And I'm convinced this is how Levi's been fostering his success in the world. This is how he's influenced local politicians. This is how he scratched certain backs and greased certain palms. This is how he's succeeded in the cutthroat trade of tax extortion. You know, he's been throwing parties to keep his friends close and his enemies closer. Maybe, a, a, maybe just partying a bit to numb some of the sense that his life is tragic. Maybe the shame and the guilt. He's trying to just drink it away. I don't know. But then Jesus walks by, and to his utter shock and everlasting delight, Jesus calls him to follow him, and he jumps at the chance. He walks away from his tax booth, I don't think begrudgingly, I think with relief, with a sense that finally, I've got a new lease. Finally, Jesus is going to change. Something's going to change in my life, and this Jesus is going to do it. Now, little did Levi know how much was going to change. I don't think he had really any idea. But as many of us might know, Levi, of course, has another name. He's also known as Matthew, as in Matthew, the first gospel, was written by this man. First book in the New Testament, the first of the four gospels. So, yeah, kingdom potentiality was definitely there, but not yet. That's a long ways off. On this day, Levi leaves the booth to follow Jesus, and he wanted to do something special, something to mark the new life, something to honor his new rabbi to tell everyone else that big changes are coming. You just watch. And so he did the only thing he knew how to do. He threw another party for all the same buddies, but this time in honor of Jesus. And his buddies came. And you already know in the story, these are not the cream of the social crop. These are lowlifes just like Levi. There are more problem people in that sense, crowding around Jesus and enjoying this special party. I think they're toasting to his success, whatever that is, I'm sure. Maybe they're happy to, maybe one of them's hoping he can take over the trade, I'm not sure. They're probably telling off-color jokes. I think they're pretty thrilled to be included in this party with Jesus because he's been doing stuff, his name is starting to spread. They now feel pretty proud that they're in the rabbi's social circle. And so it's an odd mix. And we know it's an odd mix because the religious hardliners pick up on it right away. The moment the party is underway, they're complaining. It's like, you got, what the, you, uh, you're eating with those guys? It's like, have you lost your covenant-loving mind? This is like a, a beard-plucking moment for these guys, <laughs> these religious dudes. They just, they're frothing. Now, we don't see it because we're kind of used to Jesus doing this kind of things. We don't realize just how shocking it would have been for a faithful covenant-keeping Jew like Jesus to share a meal or to eat at the table to show this kind of accepting friendship to the people of that ilk. In that time, to eat with was to befriend someone. To eat with was to fellowship. To eat with was to say, these are my people. I love them. And all these religious hardliners saw All they saw was sinful rabble in need of rejection. The sin, the compromise, the brokenness, that's all they could focus on. And in that sense, they are inattentionally blind. And as a result, they miss completely what was so obvious to Jesus, that these people, each and every one of them, as messed up as they might have been, were crowding in to be with him, to get close to him, to eat with him. And yeah, they're sinners, of course they are. But that sin is a sickness that Jesus is fully equipped to heal. 
Their healing's going to come through his holiness. Just as we saw with Simon, just as we saw with the leper, just as we saw with the paralytic, Jesus is holy, and his holiness is spreading wholeness to everyone else. His holiness isn't a holiness that pushes sinful people away. His holiness calls people to follow him into wholeness, into forgiveness, into life, where we will often just see sinners in need of rejection or maybe some kind of reprimand, or let's just be honest, a long scrub in the bathtub. Jesus sees people in need of healing with compassionate eyes and they're crowding in around him and he knows that crowding in around him is the only way to true healing, the only way to true wholeness, the only way to cleansing and forgiveness. And so Jesus could see the clamor to be close to him for what it was. It actually represented a turning away from a self-centered in sin to a self-centered in him. And that shift, that change is, by definition, repentance. Even if at the start, it was just people who were just crowding in close and hoping they can share the same salad bowl as Jesus. And this challenges us too, doesn't it? I mean, how often can we be religious or self-righteous, particularly in how we see others who are caught up in perhaps something sinful or broken by life? Maybe people that we, you just kind of want to push away. Jesus calls us instead into ministry, into friendship, into fellowship. And so I invite you again to think of a person or maybe a kind of person, maybe a group of people that this characterizes for you, a people that you have tended to push away, even in your own heart and mind. Maybe you've kept the veneer good. We'll get to that next. But um, maybe you've kept the veneer up, but in your heart of hearts, you're like, I just, Jesus, please know. Who are the people that you would push away in your heart and in your mind? You're filthy sinners in need of a good tongue lashing or something. And would you be willing to look at that and say, Jesus, what would it look like for my sight to change? For my blindness to be shifted? For my focus to become your focus so that I'm seeing people like that in need of healing and healing that comes from you? What would it look like for my vision to shift? What would it look like, Jesus, for me to begin to see them as people you love and want to befriend? Pray with me again. Lord Jesus, we confess that there are people for whom we we struggle. We struggle to be with. We struggle to be around. They're off-putting. We don't like them. And we make reasons and excuses and rationalizations for that. And when I look at this story, Jesus, uh, I'm convicted. We are convicted. So, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us see as you see and be willing to befriend as you befriend. We pray this in your name, Jesus. But he ain't quite done with us yet, is he? There's a third way. Jesus shifts our inattentional blindness. Jesus views religious people with a surprising twist. You know, when we contend to see uh, people who are the favored faithful, Jesus actually sees, often sees, self-righteousness in need of repentance. Now, this is, I think, our hardest shift, actually, out of the three. I think we've been around, some of us at least been around circles long enough to know we need to love people that are hard to love. 
We need to look people uh, who are far away from Jesus with that kind of potentiality. But I think in the area of how uh, the religious or the righteous are seen, this is perhaps where we are the most inattentionally blind. Because when we see people that seem to have it all together, who say all the right things, do all the right things, been in church for years, seem to know their Bibles, display all the right signals, we think, well, there's faithful, there's faithful people, the faithful favored, you know. That's who we're all supposed to look like. That's what we're supposed to be like. And that might be true. But what's astonishing is Jesus looks on the heart and often will see beyond or through what are external things, the external religiosity, and then he raises a challenging twist to our misperception. They can be the most lost people in the story. All through the Gospels, we see this as a repeated pattern. Those with the most knowledge of the Scriptures, those who displayed the most faithfulness, at least from the outside, those who kept the law the most perfectly, those who looked in every way as pious and as holy and as good and as right, those are the people that consistently missed Jesus himself. Missed him. And not just missed him, hated him, rejected him, fought with him, conspired against him, tried to trap him, lied about him, drug him up on false you know, accusations, and then got him killed. Remember, it was the faithful people who did that. Not the rabble out in the, you know, not the people they thought was wrong with the world. It was everyone who was right, supposedly. It was the seemingly righteous that failed to see Jesus. It's the seemingly righteous that are failing to see what Jesus is doing. Failing to see true repentance as it's happening in front of their eyes. They're the ones who are opposing the work of God that's actually happening. They're so busy obsessing over other people's sin that they do not see their own self-righteousness. And they are in a dire, dire spiritual situation as a result. Jesus sees through them. He sees what no one else saw. Because I just do want to remind us. I'm saying this so we, we get it. We, we kind of, we, especially if you've read the Bible for a while, and the word Pharisee pops up, you know, uh-uh-uh, the villain has entered the room, right? But not in that day. To the average Jew walking down the dusty streets of Capernaum, and certainly to every tax collector and so-called sinner suddenly feeling judged by Levi's party, everyone who looked at one of these Pharisees just went, wow, I mean, that's impressive. How how does he do that? They're amazing. And they kind of cringe a bit with guilt, you know, because they're looking at the best neighbor you could ever imagine. They're looking at the people that they just, everything about them says, that's the way you should live. That's godly. That's good. If we could just be more like them, but I can't, I suck, I know. Well, at least they're around, you know. Those are the people that God's looking for. Didn't you get it? That, that's how people saw them. We've been sometimes so well-trained, as it were, in the, particularly in the, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we just, we only see the, we kind of see the Pharisees with fangs, you know? And they're not, that is not how people were viewing them back then. In fact, for the average Jew, they kind of think it's this group of Pharisees, the Pharisee crew that Jesus should have been plundering for disciples. I mean, that's where you should be looking, not over there with the tax collector for crying out loud. Look at these guys. They already know the Bible. They've already been equipped to train. They've memorized it all. 
You know, they've never done anything wrong. You know, that's who they should be asking. So calling Levi is shocking. But calling out these Pharisees and religious types is even more shocking because then people are thinking, what? What? I thought these were the guys that got it right. And now Jesus is dressing them down and continues to do so in even stronger language. It's because where we often see the favored faithful, Jesus sees self-righteous people desperately in need of repentance and yet often completely insulated from it. They can't even hear it. Their ears are deaf. Their eyes are dull. And we can still do the same. We can be distracted. We can miss stuff. We can look at religious externals and assume the heart is true, right? I'll get to us personally for a moment, but like just before I get there, we can look around us and see the same thing. Just this past week, I engaged in several painful conversations with people frustrated by the lack of integrity from so-called mature Christians. People who confess Jesus, who talk about God a lot, uh, the Bible seem to know it, attend church, send all the right signals of piety and holiness, and yet tragically, they're crooked in business, filthy in mind, idiots emotionally, and relationally so immature that they spread dysfunction, division, and disaster every step of the way. And it is tragic. And Jesus wants us to see this straight. That the only hope, the only hope for people that are deluded by their own self-righteousness is that they be knocked hard enough to wake up and finally hear, finally notice, which explains actually why Jesus is so blunt and so harsh with them. He does it actually out of love because he knows the only chance they have of cracking that false self, that fake identity, that religious veneer, and receiving the love and forgiveness they need, the only hope for them is probably a hard crack up the side of the head. Which explains why, you know, one of the most famous followers of Jesus was a Pharisee, right? What was his name? Paul. First Saul, then Paul. But he also is famous for how Jesus had to deal with him so he would pay attention, right? It wasn't softly, gentle, you know, heart strangely warmed in the back bench. He was knocked off his donkey, struck blind for days, you know. Then people tried to kill him right away. It was a harsh coming too. It was a, it was a harsh awakening. And I think the only way that Pharisee Paul would have ever woken up. Now, perhaps this challenges you. Perhaps you realize with a bit of a start that you, in fact, might be one of those self-righteous people who tend to think of themselves pretty great, but find themselves critical of how Jesus seems to be gracious and accepting of other people. Or maybe pushing away people that seem unlikely or questionable. Or maybe just struggling with Jesus. Or maybe you've layered so many false selves on top, you don't even know who you are. And you seem... Finally, maybe, maybe there's something. If you have an inkling of that, I want to appeal to you this morning. If you just have the slightest shred of question that you might be that person, I want to implore you to seize the opportunity to submit your heart and your mind to the searching work of the Holy Spirit and to pray the last few verses of Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let Jesus crack through that self-righteous veneer and save you. I mean that with no hyperbole whatsoever. 
related to that, I think we can ask Jesus to help us see maybe the heart or engage with the religious, if we can put it that way, brothers and sisters even, who um, are struggling with that, maybe to engage them in a prayerful conversation about being spiritually formed in Christ, of, of letting the Holy Spirit mature us emotionally, deal with some of the blockages, deal with some of that criticism or cynicism that we carry about others. Be willing to even, each one of us, maybe in a spiritual friendship or in a conversation, to say, I want to be challenged on my blind spots, but the problem with the blind spot is they're hard to see. So Holy Spirit, help me. And then maybe look for a friend or two who would help you as well. This is hard, hard, hard work. Actually, it's the hardest work of all. It's far, far harder than some of the other things we've even mentioned. I mean, when people acknowledge their brokenness and their sin, they have a lot easier time acknowledging their need for a Savior. But what about those who don't even acknowledge it, who think they're fine? Well, Jesus challenges us to love them too. And to love ourselves. To be willing to let him in to do that work. Well, it's clear here in the story, I think Jesus helps us see people with a different focus than we do. Because Jesus is not fooled by the misdirection of false piety, external holiness. He, he looks in the heart. He sees what's going on inside. He sees the kingdom potentiality and problem people. He brings wholeness to the sick that everyone else wants to push away from. And he knows that repentance, true repentance, which isn't some fancy thing, but it's actually just a turning away from yourself to Jesus, is the only hope. Only hope for the sick, only hope for the Levites, but the only hope for the deluded self-righteous too. And so as I close, two practical responses for us. What do we do with this? What do you do with this? The first one is this. I think we need to just look at a story like this and realize that Jesus wants to be with us. Jesus wants to be with you. I think some of us just need to sit with that, smile, and enjoy it. Lots of us feel like a Levi who never measured up. A lot of us feel like these crowds whose lives are so royally messed up, we think there is not a chance that a guy like Jesus would want to hang with me. And then there's others who need to be shaken out of that. But all of us call to just be with Jesus because he wants to be with us. And so that's the starting point. We recognize ourselves at the table. We recognize ourselves in the crowd. We hear that Jesus actually wants to be with us. And then second. As we were with Jesus, he will change us in how we see others. We will watch him. We will look to him. We will follow him. And it's only as we're with him, our perception of ourselves, but also others, will shift. We'll begin to see as he sees. That's our prayer, isn't it? That's our hope. Amanda and Crystal and Mike are going to come lead us in a final response song as I pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray for your presence in our lives, this invitation that you've given us to come, to follow you, to eat with you, to be with you, but also to hear from you, to receive from you, both invitation and rebuke, both fellowship and correction. We pray that you would give to us your way of seeing, your way of seeing ourselves, your way of seeing others that you would train us up as your apprentices so that we can faithfully be your people and that others will experience your love through us. 
We look to you, Jesus. We follow you. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.